This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mental health care is an issue that may have gotten eclipsed during the past legislative session. Issues like transportation and the budget loomed large. But advocates say 2017 was a banner year at the Capitol for mental health care. Andrew Romanoff leads Mental Health Colorado. He's also a former speaker of the state house. So the Capitol is a place he knows well. And Andrew, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much, Ryan. I appreciate it. Colorado is one of just six states that puts people experiencing a mental health crisis behind bars, at least temporarily, if a more suitable place isn't available. Lawmakers took a big step towards ending that. First off, why do you believe it was important to change? Well, criminalizing mental illness or confining people who are experiencing a mental health crisis to jail is one of the most expensive and least therapeutic decisions we could make. And as you said, only half a dozen states in the nation uh, take this approach. Fortunately, the legislature decided, as you said, to end that practice and, more important, to increase funding for therapeutic facilities. Uh, If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, treating you like a criminal when you haven't been charged with a crime uh, can only exacerbate the crisis you're experiencing. In some regards, this system was a function of necessity because there are places in Colorado that simply don't have a suitable hospital. And so jails became the place. So something systemically has to change, right, for this to change. No, that's exactly right. We've talked to a lot of law enforcement officials across the state who tell us they're not equipped or trained or interested in becoming the front line of defense for mental health crises. And they suggested that we end this practice and give them the support they need in their communities to treat mental health as what it is, a public health problem. So what does that look like? Opening new facilities, having teams come in who can transfer people? Yes and yes. Uh, Look, Colorado needs more psychiatric beds. We need more transition services. We need more outpatient care. We need, as you said, mobile response units who can uh, respond to these emergencies. Uh, We do a decent job as a state in responding to crises, but not a particularly good job of preventing them. What would these teams look like? So they would deploy from a city nearby or... Well, we have mobile crisis response units now. They were the product of a decision the legislature and the governor made a few years ago in the wake of the tragedy in the Aurora shooting. Uh, But we just don't have enough. And the result is if you're, say, a rural sheriff and you see somebody who presents a danger to himself or others or is gravely disabled by a mental health condition, your choice is to leave that person on the street Uh, or to lock them up for 24 hours in jail, or to deplete your resources. In some cases, you may be running a two-person department. So you take one person off the beat and transport that person, the transport the person experiencing a mental health crisis across the state. Those are bad choices. What we want to do instead is get more walk-in centers equipped with the resources they need to respond to these sorts of crises, use telehealth or telemedicine in places where it's available so that folks can... Uh, provide virtual care when physical care is not immediately available. So this bill, which I believe the governor will sign this week, says $7 million has been earmarked for these efforts, because as you say, there need to be more of these teams. It's interesting, the money comes from the marijuana tax fund. How do you feel about treating mental illness with proceeds from a mind-altering drug? 
Well, the voters made that decision in part when they passed the constitutional amendment authorizing the use of marijuana and dedicating the proceeds in part to substance use treatment. Look, there's not enough money in this proposal to do all the things that you and I are talking about. So this is just a start. It is. You know, Colorado has fallen to the bottom quartile in the nation when it comes to psychiatric beds per capita. We need, for example, twice as many psychiatric beds to accommodate the population we've seen grow in this state. Uh, We need more mental health professionals in schools. Another proposal the governor made and the legislature approved. And we need more therapists who are able to take insurance Uh, and see patients not just when they experience a crisis, uh, but when they need counseling. And so you think that because voters uh, approved that money, uh, you're comfortable with with what what the source is? I'm comfortable. uh, I can't say that I'm comfortable with the amount of funding that we've dedicated to mental health up front. uh, But uh, the truth is Colorado, like so many other states, uh, too often waits until a mental health crisis reaches stage four. Now, the analogy we offer is in the case of cancer. If you approached a doctor and you told her you had a bump or a lump or some other symptom, and the doctor said, well, that might be cancer, but why don't we wait until it reaches stage four? A doctor like that would be disbarred. Unfortunately, that's what we've allowed to happen when it comes to mental health, delaying treatment for eight to 10 years past the onset of symptoms. Well, and the conversation we've been having, which has focused on these mental health holds, is when someone is already in crisis, right? It's not necessarily addressing the years of uh, time you could have intervened to prevent that. That's exactly right, Ryan. And look, what we know is that in half of all lifetime cases of mental illness, the symptoms appear by the age of 14. And in three quarters of the cases, the symptoms appear by the age of 24. So adolescence turns out to be the period in which most, not all, but most cases of mental illness first manifest their symptoms. And this indeed relates uh, to another piece of legislation, which offers more support to schools, especially at the elementary school level. Is that right? Right. There's two steps the legislature made in that regard. Uh, First, it opened up a grant program that now serves only middle and high school students with mental health professionals, adding elementary schools to that list. And it dedicates enough funding to add 150 more mental health professionals to Colorado schools, including elementary schools. So we're talking about school nurses, school counselors, school psychologists, school social workers. Not enough, but a big step in that direction. So more money and more people. And what do you think the long-term effect of that would be? Well, what we know is that kids who are able to get uh, referred to a mental health professional on-site at school are far more likely, eight or nine times more likely, to get the care they need than if the kids are referred to mental health care outside of school. Maybe their folks don't have a car. Maybe there's too much stigma attached to the trip they'd have to take to a place labeled a mental health agency. Uh, So school-based mental health services are an absolutely essential investment. It's not the whole ballgame, to be clear. We've got to do a far better job of engaging parents in this conversation, of training teachers, not to treat or to diagnose mental illness, but at least to refer kids who might need that kind of help. And you're saying having the person to whom you refer on campus makes a big difference. We're speaking with Andrew Romanoff, president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado. We're looking back at the session that wrapped last week. Uh, which he says had a lot of successes in terms of mental health care. And if there's a theme here, uh, Andrew, it's that the state appears to be 
uh, taking a lot of the responsibility here, I I guess, versus the federal governments, would you say? Well, it's got to be a partnership. Uh, I think given the turmoil in Washington right now and the danger that Congress has posed to the coverage of mental health and substance use services as essential benefits, uh, we can't expect... In, In discussion of the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. Right. I think whatever stand you take on the Affordable Care Act, it's a big victory when we can make mental health on par with physical health. That's a law, frankly, Colorado passed uh, before the federal government. I was going to say Colorado sees those as having parity. Right. And it's important not just to put laws like that on the books, but actually to enforce them. Uh, So I think in partnership with local governments, with communities, uh, with all the stakeholders, we can make a difference. There's no reason on earth that Colorado could not become the national leader in the prevention and treatment of mental health and substance use disorders. What state do you hold out as the model? You know, I asked the same question when I took this job two years ago, trying to figure out if any state had cornered the market. And I can't point you to one that's got this exactly right. We've certainly taken some strides, uh, thanks to the governor's leadership and others, but we've got a long way to go. So another stride in the past session, a bill awaiting the governor's signature, allocates, I think, about $3 million also from marijuana taxes for the treatment of people with mental illness when they are released from jail? What was previous uh, to this in terms of the procedure and what will happen now? Well, what we're trying to do here is make sure that folks, as you said, who are being released from the Department of Corrections or from jails... Who have been... Uh, charged with crimes or committed crimes. Right, who have served served their time and are now being released, uh, get the support they need to reenter the community and avoid reoffending. What we know, frankly what I know from having worked on this issue in the legislature years and years ago, is that folks with a serious mental illness, a clinically diagnosable uh, condition like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, who are incarcerated, are reoffending at a rate... Uh, of 80% within 12 months of release or parole if they don't get the treatment they need. Mm. So it's in their interest and ours as a state to make sure that we put them on a course of treatment and help them resume productive lives. And so this offers more services when they're released. That's right. And and support for their housing as well. And, And this leads also to a fundamental question, which is, is it still true that the corrections is is too often dealing with mental health as opposed to mental health professionals yes. or hospitals. Uh, yes. Uh, that's the, the theme for not just of Colorado, but of the country. Turning the Colorado Department of Corrections into the chief source of treatment for mental health or substance use disorders is a pretty pricey proposition. And it's not just our state. If you look across the country, you'd find something like 55% of inmates in state prisons and 65% of those in county jails have some kind of mental health or substance use disorder or both. Now, you're not saying none of them belong behind bars, but that there should be uh, an assessment. Right. I don't think anybody's proposing that a mental illness entitles you to a get-out-of-jail-free card. But what I am suggesting is that in the interests of the people we're talking about here, in the financial interests of the state, uh, it would be far smarter and cheaper and ultimately more humane to treat these issues as a public health problem rather than a criminal justice problem. Andrew, thank you for surveying the session with us. Thanks very much, Ryan. Andrew Romanoff, president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, also former speaker of the state house. And we did indeed talk about the 2017 legislative session and its impact on mental health care. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Public schools in Colorado will get more money from the state next year, but lawmakers see a crisis coming down the road when it comes to funding for kindergarten through high school. We're going to hear more about what happened with education at the State House this year from Nick Garcia of Chalkbeat, Colorado. Hi again, Nick. Hey, Ryan. For a while, it looked like the state would go further into debt to schools, but that turned around, I think, much to many people's surprise. So schools will get a couple of hundred dollars more per student next year. That is a short-term win in the minds of most lawmakers, but what's their longer-term concern about funding for public schools? Yeah, I think what a lot of people are realizing now is that the constraint that our Constitution has between spending limits and spending requirements um, are really coming to a a logjam, right? And lawmakers are setting up a study to take a really deep dive into how we fund our schools, where that money comes from, and how that money is being spent. Now, if you're a Colorado voter who's been here for some time, you might remember Amendment 23, which like was supposed to mandate more funding for education. But because of competing things in the state constitution, you're saying there is not a sort of steady, dependable stream for public education despite that. Well, so it's really important to notice that Colorado lawmakers have continued to increase funding for schools. Okay. But what school districts and school leaders will tell you is that that money is not keeping up with costs, whether it's health care or transportation or new technology. They just don't have enough money. There are some lawmakers who refute that claim. They say we spend $6.5 billion on schools plus some change every year, and that should be enough. It's just not being spent uh, well enough or correctly. Um, And so what are they forecasting down the road? What scenario do they see? I think what most – what people who are worried the most see happening is costs getting – even more out of control, becoming more expensive, and the state not being able to keep up with that demand. And further, I think that there are a lot of there's a lot of confusion around the the amount that local counties and local school districts are contributing to the overall state spending is getting less and less and less. So about 15, 20 years ago, local share from local property taxes made up about 50% of all the money made that went to schools. Now it's about 30%. So the state is having to kick in more and more and more in order to keep up with the constitutional requirements. And the state just doesn't have that much money because of the taxpayer bill of rights and how much they're allowed to spend each year. Okay. So seeing this down the road, what did they pass? So what happened this year is they created a interim uh, committee of lawmakers. 10 lawmakers will meet over the next two summers to study our tax laws, study the funding formula that they use to uh, decide how much each school district get. And they'll be making suggestions over the next two years on how to update that into the 21st century. And we're going to say that the governor's office has really encouraged this kind of review. Here is Governor Hickenlooper's budget director, Henry Sobinay. He's not talking specifically about the bill you mentioned that passed, but of this need in general. What is fundamentally broken in Colorado, and it does deal with equity issues, is how we pay for schools. And this system has not had a proper adult strategic evaluation uh, in a very long time. It's 40% of the general fund. It's 50% of local property taxes on the average statewide. Our administration feels like it's past time for a, a deep look at this. 
And so, as you've said, lawmakers will meet in the off-season and next year as well to come up with some answers about long-term funding. I want to say that higher education also got a little boost in state funding, as did K-12. through We said that. To the hottest topic of the past couple of weeks, though, <laughs> charter schools. Why did some lawmakers push hard for more tax money for charter schools? What's going on at those schools? Yeah, so I think the underlining underlining argument has been that local school districts have been withholding statewide about $30 million of what's called mill levy override money. So local school districts get to ask their voters for tax increases. And this has become a very, very popular method to increase funding because the state hasn't been keeping up as we were just talking about. And charter schools in some school districts have not been, according to their supporters, getting an an equal cut into that money. Well, lawmakers passed uh, in the last few minutes of the General General Assembly this uh, last week was a new requirement that school districts must create a detailed plan about how they're using that money to best meet the needs of their students. And school districts will now be required to share that money if charter schools are helping to meet that mission. So for example, if local school districts want to uh, pay for full-day kindergarten. If a charter school offers full-day kindergarten, they'll be required to uh, get a cut of that money that's being paid to meet that need. Because some of these tax increases, you say mill levy overrides, are really topic-specific. Very much you know, They're so. asking voters for, yes, money for... X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And the point is that if charter schools then provide those services, the school district has to take a long and hard look at sharing the money raised. Do you think it will actually make a difference for charter schools? I think in, um, if the money is being used for very specific needs, uh, or I should say more general needs like paying for kindergarten, teacher training, um, English language learners, absolutely. If they're very, very specific, such as you know, paying for advanced placement tests in high schools, maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, so it could be a mixed picture. Uh, this bill was debated over nearly the whole session and, as you say, really came together at the last minute. Uh, The charter school bill's biggest opponents were Democrats, so Republicans were more likely to support the idea. But it seems to be at odds with the local control mantra that the (laughs) the GOP has in general, right? I mean, here's the state saying to local districts, here's what you've got to do with your money in relation to charter schools. How did they get over that (laughs) philosophical hurdle? I I think uh, you raise up a good point. And I think one of the lawmakers, State Senator Andy Kerr, put it best that local control is in the eye of the beholder. And um, I think what the Republicans who supported this bill said was, we believe local school districts are being discriminatory and it's our job to right this wrong. I do want to point out that this, uh, the last compromise was passed with overwhelming bipartisan support, mm. tons of Democrats, almost uh, universal support from Republicans. So, To another issue, which is the teacher shortage in Colorado, there are fewer people here training to become teachers. Salaries are generally low in the state. Those are just some of the factors that have created what some people call a crisis with a lack of qualified teachers here. So what did lawmakers do to address that? Yeah, so two bills made it through, which I was actually pretty shocked because before the session, I didn't think the lawmakers were going to take this issue up at all. But there will be a study done to try and figure out what role the state can play in helping to address this shortage. And also rural schools will be allowed to hire um previously retired teachers to work for the entire school year without them having to sacrifice their pension. 
So that's a big win for rural schools. I see. They can return to the workforce without that's that right. sacrifice. But specifically in rural areas? Rural schools only. Okay. Uh, what was the biggest surprise from this session? Was it that they addressed uh, that matter or were, were there others? No, I think the biggest surprise for me was that uh, lawmakers uh, killed a bill that would have really reformed the state's uh, suspension policies for the state's youngest students, uh, kindergarten, preschool, rather, through second grade. Um, there was overwhelming bipartisan support when this uh, measure was introduced. And um, and for, I, uh, at the request of rural schools, the bill was killed because they thought that it was a front-range problem with a statewide solution that would um, make their jobs more difficult out there. So do you think that there will be efforts to curb suspensions in future sessions? Then? Absolutely. This bill yeah. is coming back. I know that the supporters of the bill plan on reaching out to rural schools extensively next fall. They want to plan visits out there and to see how they can work with them to get this measure passed last year. One more, thing, one more thing before you go. Uh, we've heard so much about testing in recent years, that there are too many standardized tests, particularly for high school students. So lawmakers are scrapping the current standardized test for freshmen and instead giving them something aligned with the SATs, the college entrance exams. Briefly, the point of that. Yeah, that's right. So this has been a point of contention over the last three years. Uh, Lawmakers got the governor to sign on board to make this swap at uh, the ninth grade level. So students will still be taking some sort of a test, but it's a much shorter test aligned to the SAT. They think this will curb the opt-out movement and give parents and students and teachers more trust in our uh, testing system. I see. The opt-out movement of not taking tests at all, and they see this, I suppose, as leading to a pathway towards college and meaningful thus. That's right. Okay. Nick, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Nick Garcia covers the State House for Chalkbeat, and we talked about what lawmakers did for K-12 schools in the annual session that just ended. You can find links to Nick's reporting at cprnews.org. The highest profile job in Denver these days might just be operating a crane. More than 30 tower cranes soar above the city, symbols of the construction boom, residential especially. In Denver, there are 25,000 apartment units under construction and 27,000 more planned. So what's it like to work in a crane? Well, let's meet a guy who operates one. My name is Aaron Genova, operating engineer and tower crane operator, currently employed by RMS Cranes. And the project Genova's on is a 12-story apartment building that'll take up half a block along California Street. His workday starts around 6.30 in the morning. There's no elevator, so he climbs to work. But first, he has to turn the crane on. When the cranes first get on site, they're typically powered by a mobile generator. And then once uh, electricity is brought to the site, we just have this convenient little switch that powers it all up. These tower cranes are electric, which I think is fabulous because I don't have to deal with diesel fuel. I don't have to smell the exhaust. It's a wonderful thing. And with that, Genova starts his climb, rung by rung to the top, 200 feet above the city. I can see another tower operator. Oh, two of them. Two of them making their climbs this morning, ascending up toward the top. We attached a video camera to his head so you can see what he sees at cprnews.org. Right here, I guess we're probably about 80 feet, 100 feet 
above tree level. I'm not sure how well the mic was able to pick it up, but it's usually much louder on street level, all the commotion with the construction workers and just the noise of the city as we get up toward the top. Gets nice and quiet, which is nice. It takes him about 15 minutes to get to the top, and once he's safely inside the cab, we're able to chat. Aaron in the sky, me on the ground. I want to know if it's claustrophobic up there. Not to me. It's completely surrounded by glass. We've got glass to the left, to the right, in front of, below, above. It's better than any corner office because we've got all the corners, (laughs) and it moves. So... To me, it's not claustrophobic. I, I would see how it could be for some people. There's plenty of room in here to stand up. Uh, you're not going to be able to do like a exercise routine in here by any means, but but there's enough room for your lunchbox and you know enough room to stretch out. Yeah. How often do you have a break? And I imagine that includes a bathroom break, which means climbing back down. That's the probably one of the worst parts about this job. Uh, rule number one is we need to stay regular and uh, make sure we're eating and taking care of ourselves so we don't get sick up here. Because there is no bathroom up here. Um, you could, I suppose, if you really wanted to, you could climb down. Um, most of us do not do that. Myself, I pick up these five-gallon buckets from a barbecue joint right down the road from the house, and they, they use them. I guess that's how they buy the barbecue stuff. And then I go and pick them up before they throw them away, and I rope one up uh, every couple of weeks. And if I need to use the restroom, well, then I use that. And then I rope it down and dispose of it. So what will you be doing today? Help me understand exactly what the crane operator is responsible for. Well, uh, we essentially feed the project with materials and tools. A lot of these sites, especially in downtown areas, there is no space for storage of tools or materials. So it'll come in on a truck, and we need to reach out to the street, wherever it is. It's usually on the street. On this project, we use this little area of 21st. We close this little area of the street, and I reach out there and grab the crew's tools and materials and and place them wherever they need to be. It's just a matter of constantly keeping the guys with the tools and the materials they need to do their work. So you call what you operate a tower crane in part because of how tall it is. Are there lots of different types of cranes and are you able to operate different types? Absolutely. So I went through the apprenticeship program with the local union. Through that apprenticeship, it's a three-year program, and we are offered the opportunity to get training on lots of different heavy equipment. That's what this union does, International Union of Operating Engineers. When I went through the program, I knew I wanted to be into cranes. I knew some people that were in cranes, so that's the direction I went. This is a tower crane. There are many types of cranes. There's crawler cranes, there's hydraulic cranes, telescopic boom cranes. I fortunately got the training to operate all of those machines. Now, tower cranes the job I prefer. There's no drama up here, man. It's just me and the machine, and I listen to the gentleman on the radio, and uh, we just do our work. Um, I like that it's quiet. I, I frankly enjoy my solitude, and uh, we definitely have that. Is this lucrative work? I believe it is. I'm pretty comfortable with the, uh, the compensation. Um, it's negotiated by the local union. The downside would be that these booms like this come and go. Right now, there's plenty for us to do, but That could all change at any moment. I'm sure most of the listeners remember we just went through a recession and there weren't too many tower cranes around. So uh, if all you know how to do is run a tower crane and we go back into recession, well, you're probably going to get pretty hungry.
And do you have to be prepared to operate a crane anywhere in the country or the world? Or do you get to mostly have jobs where you live in the Denver area? Most of us stick around town. There are members that travel all over the country. I've even talked to folks that have been to other parts of the world with their skill set. I've not done that. Sounds somewhat appealing, uh, but with a family, that's kind of hard to do, you know. Mm. Are there many women in this field? There aren't very many. Uh, I only know of a few, and that's unfortunate, at least in and around the Denver area. I can't really speak to too many of the other locals. But uh, there are certainly not many that I know of in the Denver area. There probably should be. What happens if it gets really windy, or there's hail, or thunderstorms? Yeah, well, it can be terrifying, for one. The, uh, the wind can certainly have an effect on these machines. It, it pushes the loads in the machines all over the place. So that's something that we manage, and uh, it can only be taught in the field. We have tools up here that tell us what the wind speed is. And if uh, we're getting really strong winds to where we can't uh, control the loads and do the, the job safely, we stop work, and we release the brakes and let the machine weather vane, and uh, we hang out and see if the weather's going to get any better, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, when you lightning say, and thunderstorms, that's, that's for real. That, that does happen. If we get a really bad lightning storm, it's obviously best to just stay within the machine because we're safest in the crane. When you say weather veining, that is you let the crane rotate freely in the wind so that it's not bracing up against the power of the wind. Uh, it, it's free-floating. You got it. That's exactly right. What are some of the things that you will move today? I am going to be moving some concrete forms. I'm going to be moving some, uh, looks like some rebar, um, lots of tools, lots of tools. Um, I'm actually going to come around and try to make a lift with you real quick. They're forming up the second level of this structure. All right, Jeff, I'm going to come around and uh, bring the hook down to you now, buddy. So you're manipulating what you call the hook. This is what essentially grabs things. Yeah, that's right. The hook hangs from the crane, and, uh... My job is to try to get it to where they need it, and you'll be able to hear them communicating with me on the radio. I, I can see some of what they need, but things are far away, and they get hidden behind walls, and they get kind of hard to see. So, Do you have to have really good eyesight for this, John? Well, it sure helps. Sometimes these gentlemen can be a little bit difficult to understand. Uh, oftentimes we're uh, working with folks whose English is their second language, so we need to try very, very hard to pay close attention to what it is that they're saying. And like anything else, that uh, takes a little bit of practice and sometimes some patience. All of these gentlemen out here are very professional and they've been really great to work with. So that was the first pick of the day right there. Nice. I'm glad I could be a part of it with you. When you look at buildings that you've worked on, um, do you have a sense of, of pride knowing you had a hand in it? You know, I do. Um, it's, it's nice to, to kind of look back and look back and reminisce and think about what you did out there and what you were part of. Um, it takes a bunch of us to build these things. Well, thanks for sharing your view with us, quite literally. <laughs> you bet. Thanks for, thanks for getting a hold of me, man. It's been a pleasure. Aaron Genova is an operator for Denver-based RMS Cranes. He's helping build a 12-story apartment building downtown. More than 30 cranes currently dot the city skyline. You can see photos and video of Aaron's view at cprnews.org.
Uber and Lyft are popular ways to skip the hassle of driving, but new research from CU Denver finds it can be less efficient than driving alone, and it can clog up roads. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports. I'm here at Colorado Public Radio in the Denver Tech Center, and I'm going to jump in a lift here to get downtown for an interview. And uh, there it is. Hector? Great. My driver is Hector Medina. And I've been driving for Lyft for uh, three months, almost three months. As we turn onto Interstate 25 toward downtown Denver, Medina tells me it's been a busy morning. He hasn't had to wait longer than a minute or two for a passenger. But when it's slow... Sometimes I just drive a little bit. If I know that there's nothing, uh, I just go and park somewhere like Walmart, Target. Medina says he drives about 400 miles a day. And for about 100 miles of that, he doesn't have a passenger. That doesn't surprise Alejandro Hanau. He just earned his Ph.D. at CU Denver. He spent months researching Uber and Lyft for his dissertation. And he says it would have been more efficient if I had driven myself downtown. They're moving you 10 miles, but we're putting 15 or 20 miles into the system from that vehicle. Part of the reason is because before and after he drops you off, he still have to drive around. That's called deadheading, a term from the taxi industry. And Hanau's research suggests that it's putting a lot of cars on the road that wouldn't be there otherwise. Hanau grew up in a big family in Colombia, where they only had one car. We rely a lot in getting around by bus, biking, walking, getting rides with friends, using taxis. And that experience got him interested in how Uber and Lyft have changed how people get around. So he drove for both companies for about four months. He kept meticulous records of his driving and surveyed more than 300 of his passengers. About a third of them told him they would have walked, biked, or taken transit if not for Uber or Lyft. Hanau says the demand for ride-hailing services is increasing and adding more cars to the roads. Scott Coriel, a spokesman for Lyft, disagrees with Hanau's analysis. The study seems to be at odds with past surveys of ride-sharing users, as well as our own study of Lyft passengers. Coriel points to two national surveys that show ride-hailing passengers drive less. They're also less likely to own a car and more likely to take public transit. But those studies don't say if Uber and Lyft are the cause for that behavior. It's a good question. I mean, I think I'm not a data scientist, so uh, I'm just looking at the studies that, that we do have and that we have seen. Coriel says more study is needed to better understand the young industry. But that's tricky because Uber and Lyft don't give data to researchers. Lyft says it's protecting passenger privacy by not sharing it. Uber did not respond to an interview request. Others are happy to get whatever data they can on Uber and Lyft. Chrissy Fanganello directs transportation for the city of Denver. She's a fan of how Uber and Lyft have shaken things up. It's getting people to think differently about transportation. They're not saying, I've, I've got to have my car and I'm going to drive myself everywhere. They're, they're interested and willing to take a different mode. Hanau says that's certainly possible. And he expects self-driving cars will add another layer of complexity, too. The key measure for success, in his view, is whether people give up their own cars for good. But he's keeping his own car for now, with two kids and his commute from one suburb to another. He says life is just too tough without it. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Two undocumented immigrants in Colorado got some very good news last week. Arturo Hernandez-Garcia and Jeanette Vizguera had both sought sanctuary in churches to avoid deportation. And on Friday, both learned they can stay in the country until 2019. 
Laura Lichter is Garcia's attorney. As much as I'd like to claim that we're amazing lawyers, this is because there was a congressional request. When that congressional request used an obscure legislative tactic called a private bill, CPR's government reporter Allison Sherry has been looking into this legislative tool, which is suddenly in the spotlight. She spoke to my colleague Nathan Heffel. Hi, Allison. Hey, Nathan. So I understand lawmakers run private bills to help a specific person with no other recourse. And clearly, one thing they're being used for is immigration. Tell us more about how they work. So these have actually been around since the very first Congress and were even used in the Civil War to correct military records. But more recently, I looked back at the private bills introduced in the House of Representatives, and the vast majority appear to be aimed at helping undocumented immigrants. How often are they used? They're pretty rare. In the entire last two-year term of the House, only 26 private bills were introduced. This term, which started in January, is on pace for more than that. Already 15 have been introduced in the House and 14 in the Senate. From Colorado's delegation, Senator Michael Bennett and Representatives Ed Perlmutter and Jared Polis all sponsored private bills to help Garcia and Viscara. I'll note Bennett, Perlmutter, and Polis are all Democrats. So what are the politics of this? Have you seen any Colorado Republicans running private bills this year? Not in the last few years, at least, no. So do these work like normal bills? Do they get voted on in committee and by the full chamber, or do they have some special process? Uh, Procedurally, the House and the Senate each treat this a little differently. But in the past, just the introduction of a private bill would usually get a person an automatic reprieve while federal officials reviewed their case. For Viscara, Congressman Polis has actually run a bunch of private bills for her. We have introduced private bills on her behalf since 2013, and she's gotten five stays of removal as a result. And on Friday, she got another one. Uh, What about the other undocumented immigrant who got a reprieve last week, Arturo Hernandez Garcia? Was that what made the difference in his case, too? Yes. Here's what Senator Bennett said about why he filed a private bill for Arturo Garcia. He's been a valued member of our community for two decades. And it seemed to me important and consistent with My view of how they ought to be enforcing their policies, that we should ask them to take a second look at this. Congressman Perlmutter has also introduced a couple of private bills to help Garcia. This is what he had to say. People reached out to us, and I went and visited him at the church and found him to be a somebody who is learning English, seemed to be a decent father and husband, and was providing for his family. Allison, under this administration, federal immigration officials have been criticized for taking more aggressive tactics and deporting people without criminal backgrounds. Do we know what the White House thinks of these private bills? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, the acting director of ICE sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee telling them that the agency was no longer going to honor private bills the way they used to. Now ICE says they'll consider a stay if the Judiciary Committee chair, and only if, makes a written request. That's a high hurdle for immigrants not living in the chairperson's state. Also, ICE says they won't grant a single person more than one stay of removal through the entire process. So what Congressman Polis said earlier about Viscara, she's the woman living in the church basement and she received five stays. That would no longer happen. Did ICE give any reason for this change? In the letter, which we posted at CPR.org, ICE simply says the multiple stays were preventing them from, quote, removing aliens who fall within the enforcement priorities. What do members of Congress think of that move? Well, they're upset. Polis called it one of the only vehicles Congress had to help undocumented constituents. Perlmutter said he didn't understand where the Trump administration was coming from. It takes away one of the few tools that a member of Congress uh, or senator had 
to prevent an unjust deportation. Immigration lawyers I've talked to are also extremely upset. Laura Lichter, that's Garcia's lawyer, says despite the good news he got last week, she doesn't know what this means for their other clients in the future. All right. Thanks, Allison. Thank you for having me. CPR's government reporter Allison Sherry speaking with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Don't dismiss the power and profitability of arts and crafts. The Denver startup Craftsy just got bought up for $230 million by NBC Universal. Craftsy offers online tutorials. You can learn to make baby shoes that can top cakes or sew together your own travel bag. Anne Wheel of Denver is one of Craftsy's many instructors. She's a former investment banker and now is in the craft world full time. We spoke with her last year about her first book, Knitting Without Needles, a stylish introduction to finger and arm knitting. And welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, indeed. We'll get to this idea of needleless knitting in a moment. But to start, you say you, you grew up doing crafts. Your mom taught you how to knit. And then you had what you call a knitting rebellion as a teen. What happened? <laughs> well, my mom taught me how to knit when I was very young. I think I was about seven. And I uh, fell in love with it immediately. And uh, But after a couple of years, I thought, you know, I've got to really make a stand here. And if my mom does it, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so I basically tackled every single craft you can imagine other than knitting, including, you know, cross stitch and crochet and embroidery, uh, paper crafts, just you name it. I loved it. Anything but what your mother was doing. and That's what, right. <laughs> what brought you back to knitting and in particular knitting without needles? Well, it actually took a while. You know, I went through high school and college and um, actually even started my career before I really started to feel uh, a dearth of creativity in my life. And um, so I rediscovered knitting and absolutely fell in love with it all over again and became quite a manic knitter, I guess you would say, um, starting then. But when I began my family, I, I found that time started to fade away um, as I was busy with work and family. Uh, and that's really what brought me to start start my blog, Flax and Twine. Mm. Uh, and it strikes me that finger and arm knitting might be perfect for kids. And so I wonder if if becoming a parent perhaps led you to that aspect of knitting in particular. Well, it did, really. I started my blog and, um, you know, my kids were young then. It, they were five, six, and seven. And uh, I was trying to knit. And I think it was it was a snow day. I was trying to knit and they kept wanting me to play with them. And so I picked up a skein of yarn and started, I said, why don't you try this with this? And I honestly, I couldn't have even told you what I was doing, but I started finger knitting. And I obviously must have learned it when I was very young. Um, and it just came back complete muscle memory. It was amazing. Um, and then I was so excited to teach finger knitting to my kids. And, but after a while they were making so many things, just long, long strands. I said, there's gotta be a way to make some beautiful things out of this finger knitting. And that's what led me to develop these new techniques where you can attach finger knitting to itself rather like crochet and build wide fabrics or, uh, baskets, um, and, and create more things with it, more versatile things with it. Gosh, I think you even have a purse for instance, in this new book, uh, will you describe briefly how finger and arm knitting works? And is it very hard to learn? 
Well, it's very easy to learn. And like I said, you know, finger knitting, you teach, you know, four or five year olds and they pick it up very easily. Arm knitting, I teach non-knitters all the time how to do it. And young kids learn that very quickly as well. Um, you're basically knitting. Um, knitting is basically a series of loops pulled through one another. And that's what you do. You just are using your arms or your fingers to create, to hold those loops and to then pull the yarn through the loops that are on your hand or on your fingers. So you're so with arm knitting, you're basically using your arms as the needles and pulling that, I call it the working yarn, the yarn that goes to the skeins of yarn. Um, you're basically pulling that working yarn through the loops on your arms or with finger knitting, you are pulling loops uh, through the loops that are on your fingers. And in that way, you create a fabric. And yeah, there are, but you can do bags and pillows and poofs and um, scarves and rugs. I mean, there are just so many wonderful things you can make. It sounds so physical and even more physical, perhaps, than knitting with needles. I mean, I'm picturing almost an upper body choreography with arm knitting. Yeah, it's really a wonderful craft where you find um, traditional knitting is more fine motor skills. But arm knitting is more gross motor skills. So it's very proprioceptive. Um, it gives you a lot of great movement feedback and um, very meditative in a different way than traditional knitting, but uh, a very relaxing way as well. I, I, I really enjoy it. I know a lot of people do. I'm having to Google proprioceptive. <laughs> <laughs> Um, relating to stimuli that are produced and perceived with an organism, especially those connected with the position and movement of the body. All right, there we go. Um, (laughs) So does the end product look messier than knitting with needles? I don't think so. So the trick is, and, and, and I will say you can see a wide range of quality of arm knitting, for example, or finger knitting online. But the trick is, especially with arm knitting, is to use appropriate yarn um, gauge or like the mass or weight of yarn for your needles. So if you imagine you're using your arms as your needles, that's a pretty big needle. You need to bulk up that yarn in order to fit that needle. And when you do that, you basically get traditional knitting on a massive scale and it looks like a traditional knit fabric so it looks full and rich just like your sweater would but it's it's just this complete you know amazing completely amazing shift in scale Uh, i think it's great i understand that you don't always knit with yarn but like recycled materials sometimes what are examples of that Well, you can, I mean, basically anything you can string together, you can knit. So you can use rope, you can use twine. I mean, you could string together um, grocery bags and knit with those. You know, there are just so many different things uh, you could use. How do those turn out? Well, I love, I love rope and jute and, um, you know, other fibers besides yarn. Um, I have not done a huge project with grocery bags, but maybe that's on the list. (laughs) Uh, Do useless items just pile up in your home or do you you find that you're able to create kind of utilitarian um, crafts that, I don't know, you bestow upon friends or something? (laughs) Well, I think it makes a lot of very useful things. And that's the thing um, that was so neat to transform that finger knitting into something you could use. You can weave the finger knitting into a beautiful rug. I have one in my bathroom. I've got a rope rug, you know, at the back door. We've got poofs in the living room. And um, my son has a big bag or big knit 
pillow he loves to wrestle with. You know, there are all sorts of things that you can use it for. And then they make great gifts. So I um, even give scarves and cowls and beautiful pillows and, you know, to your friends. And they're usable, beautiful items. I mean, knitting is obviously pretty mobile. Um, I can think of my mom who knitted in all kinds of places, but it seems that finger and arm knitting would be even more, uh, you know, um, more mobile. You could bring it with you. Well, certainly, you know, you don't run the risk of having uh, a a battle over needles, for example, on the airplane or jury duty or that sort of (laughs) thing. So that's great. Finger knitting um, fits great in your bag, and it's just a skein of yarn, and you can create with that, and that's easy. The, the trick with arm knitting is it's a lot of yarn, so ah. you have to, you know, it would be a little selective in terms of where you go. But I will say one of my favorite places to arm knit used to be on the uh, sidelines of my soccer, uh, of a soccer game, because you basically made a blanket for your lap as you sat there knitting. It was pretty nice. <laughs> Ann Wheel, who lives in Denver, founded the blog Flax and Twine. Her first book, Knitting Without Needles, a stylish introduction to finger and arm knitting, came out last year. That's when we spoke with her via Skype. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You can always connect with us at Colorado Matters.